0: Today, there are 2 million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. So today's guest is someone who will be a name very familiar with many of the listeners of the podcast. Rhea Cote Robbins is the author of Down the Plains and Wednesday's Child, the 1997 Writers and Publishers Alliance Chatbook Award winner. it was also uh, one of the... Books featured in our Christmas recommendation. Her work has been included in a number of anthologies, including Voyages, a Maine Franco-American reader, which again, was one of our Christmas recommendations. Uh, She was the editor of Le Forum, which is a publication we've obviously talked a lot about, and she developed and taught a course at the University of Maine. She is also the founder and executive director of the Franco-American Women's Institute, which is something I'm very much looking forward to talking about. Ria, welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction also.
0: Yeah, very welcome. Now, maybe you can start right from the beginning. Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in a Franco-American neighborhood in Waterville, so I was surrounded by French. So you could completely uh, the whole day, you know, like just to have uh, French conversations if you wanted to. And I was spoken to in French. Um, so the language thing um, was there. For me growing up and French was my first language so I learned English um, probably at the five years old that sort of thing hanging around with my friends in the neighborhood.
0: Gotcha now that's kind of fun now we hear the kind of the same thing about West Manchester here where you could like you can go to the store in French you go to church in French so it's the same thing in Waterville?
1: Right well you could go to the dentist in French. <laughs> doctor in French. You could go to the lawyer in French. So there was also, you know, like the mill worker people, but there was also Sir. the Franco elite. You know, there was a, uh, entire group of folks, you know, that just were there. And then, you know, that was how it was. It was just the way it was.
0: That's very awesome. And now you said you learned to speak English at about five years old. Did you go to school? In um, English? I
1: think probably my, I had a brother that was like, um, Four years older than me, and he was at school, and he decided he didn't want to do French anymore, so whatever he did, I think I might have copied him. Gotcha. But also, our neighbors, um, they were Franco, but they did not have the language. Gotcha. So, yeah, and also, the interesting thing about my neighborhood was there was a French Baptist church, so all my... Oh, wow. Yeah, all my neighbors were Franco French, but they were also Baptists. So I was surrounded by Francos who are not uh, Catholic. Not
0: Catholic. That's the first I hear this. This is interesting. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's a lot of details of your life I want to get into, but a lot of it's featured in your work. So I'm kind of hoping to introduce it through talking about some of your work, if that's cool.
1: The thing I think when you, the reason I wanted to um, write the books, the well, it really the larger version down the plains sure. contains Wednesday's Child. Because the main writers and publishers uh, competition for creative nonfiction uh, had a word limit, so I pulled. <laughs> yeah. I got you. So I had pulled the fourteen chapters from Down the Plains. Won the competition, which was kind of uh, far out. Prior to me, Denny Ledoux had won, so they had been already someone that had won the main writers and publishers uh, competition. So I was bringing in, you know, the woman's voice for that. Sure. My working question for the book was, "What does it mean to be Franco-American female and growing up in Waterville, Maine?" It was that specific, and um, the design of the book, the way that I looked at it, was that I took uh, artifact. For me, the the culture is like a relationship with uh, ritual, artifact, and um, the people, sure. and so I took components of that and ex- you know you know expounded on that in the book. But the thing that happened. Also, is I wanted to examine the reception of the French about 100 years prior to the time that I'm writing, which is like my formation years. And so I looked at um, and there was a French language newspaper in Waterville, but the, you cannot find copies of that. They didn't bother to keep it. And when I went oh, to. Wow. Yeah. And when I went to the Waterville Historical Society, already knowing that I wasn't going to find anything at that time. They had several copies of the Waterville Mail, but the two copies that I used were in the Fogo Library. And so I was looking through the old newspapers, 1870, 1871, Waterville Mail, to see the reception of the French at the time when some of the people were immigrating to Waterville. Uh, my people came, like, in the 1830s. Um, oh, wow. I to see, early. Yeah, at the time when I was writing.
0: One thing I found really cool when I first... Picked up the book. I Honestly, when I started, when I purchased it, I didn't know it was going to be a chat book. I knew it was going to be your story. But I'm just curious. Did you always know when you started this project that you were going to tell your story through a chat book instead of just like a narrative?
1: I was like 16 when I decided I wanted to write the book. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was upset about the way that this was like before. This was like in the 60s, and this was like before the, you know, like the Franco-American Center brought to the attention of the main public that, you know, French jokes were not cool, making fun of French and their color their houses, the way they talk, move their hands and that sort of thing, their accent, kind of French and all that. So I was 16 when I decided to write the book, one, because of the attitude towards my neighborhood and two, um, because I wanted to look at, you know, what it meant to be Franco-American. And it took me a long time before I got to that place, which is a good thing because I was a little angry and I needed to calm down.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely.
1: And then, you know, when the book got uh, won, I think that that was kind of a surprise for a lot of folks because, you know, telling the Franco story is still kind of um, a challenge. For sure. Yeah, Yeah,
0: me and Mike are finding that out sometimes, yes.
1: Yes, it is, yes. And Peggy Passini in France who is an immigrant from Italy to France, has written in her book um, about the Franco-American authors, several of them, and there are several of us, that were seen as a minor literature, which some of us cannot seem to make that leap, but there are the Francos like Annie Proulx, and, you know, there's a list, right, of them that do make that leap into the commercial and the literary success, but it is a challenge.
0: What about the titles of your books? Maybe you can explain those. Uh, where the names come from? And what well, significance one, did they have to your story?
1: Yeah. One, Wednesday's Child, I uh, I have a calendar dyslexia. I kind of miss flights. They don't <laughs> okay. charge your tickets anymore for the airport. and okay. uh, So <laughs> I thought I had been born on Wednesday, but actually I was born on a Tuesday. So using yeah, me too, that, actually. <laughs> yeah, and so using that poem, right, that's what I – you know, Monday's Child is fair Fairface, Tuesday's Child, that sort of thing. That's where I got that. The Down the Plains is what the neighborhood that I grew up is called. And the person that kind of brings that out strong is uh, Albert Fector, who did his master's thesis on, a, on Waterville. And every time he writes about it, he puts it in single quotes, meaning he's quoting someone, but I've never been able to find the source of gotcha. where that comes from. Other than <laughs> the fact that's what it's called.
0: <laughs> so even growing up, you refer to yourself as being from down the plains?
1: Down the plains, right. Or uh, <laughs> sur les plains. Yes, So because it's near the river, right?
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Now in this book, actually both, both books, you tell a ton of really super uh, personal stories. Uh, Stuff that I'm not sure I would have the guts to tell, to be honest. Stories about your personal life, uh, but also about the lives of your parents and your husband and friends and stuff. Uh, Were you at all nervous going into Uh this?
1: Yeah, that's... uh, When you're doing the creative nonfiction, and then this was in 1997, so it was really at the beginning of the definition of that genre coming out. The thing that I was asked by the ladies' group here in in where I live in Brewer now, if my parents had been alive, did would I write that story? And I'm like, Well sure. I had written a story about my father when I was in college and the title of it was Here Comes Dad, get out of his chair. Yeah. Because that's what they would tell us, right? You had right. to move when he came. And when he died, he had he would keep his important papers under the cushion of his chair and that's where that I had that paper I had written about him and talked about, you know, different things that, you know, within the family, he, he, sure. it was under his cushion. Oh, so wow. it is, a, it is hard. And I taught creative nonfiction uh, for the university for quite a few years. And when you're doing that genre, there are choices you have to make. And the thing that I teach is that a sentimental story doesn't tell the truth. And so you have to be able to be true to your story and true to the full, like if you're telling a story about a person, you have to give them their full character and not make it just sweet because that is not, um, because a lot of writing also is problem solving. And so if you're telling a sentimental story, it doesn't go deep enough in order to do that problem solving.
0: Gotcha. Uh,
1: So yeah, there are choices that you make.
0: No, that's interesting. Now you talk a lot about, your family, obviously. They play a pretty big role. Um, but I'd like to start with your grandmother, if that's cool. Your Meme, maybe you could tell us about her and what she was about a little bit.
1: Well, the, the two of them, both my my mother's mother and my father's mother, Meme deg was from Northern Maine and Meme Cody was Waterville. They were strong Im- unbelievable women, I think. My mother's mother had had 17 kids and then um, the other um, Meme Cody had had 10. And one lived to be in her eighties, and the other one into her seventies, and so they they were very strong women. The there was also uh, a fight in the family because, and I find that happens a lot. Different types of stories, but um, there was like a double marriage. So, oh wow! Yeah. So my parents, and then two of their siblings had also married. And oh so yeah. That, okay, I remember it, that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Again, your your parents—you've you've already mentioned them a couple of times—play a really a really big role uh, in these stories, and the relationship that your parents had plays a pretty huge role. So maybe you introduce us to your folks.
1: I think that the, one of the things that I wanted to look at um, in the books and the writing that I did was the alcoholism in the culture. Um, yes. We were sitting in my senior year in high school. We were sitting in a health class. There were seventeen of us from the class sitting in the circle. This was like in between, like at lunch. And every single one of us, and they were all Franco's, had either one or two parents that were alcoholics. People just came out and talked about it, and so um, there was a lot of, I think, stigma attached to, sure. and there still is. Um, and I think people that struggle with alcoholism are a lot of them are self medicating. Um, there was a lot of depression. My father was, had a lot of issues. He had sought out a psychiatrist, which was unusual for a Frank American. In oh, the
0: absolutely. 60- yeah.
1: yeah. And he had had, uh, shock treatments. So, you know, and he was taking, um, you know, uh, medication for his depression. And so part of my, understanding of what happened i needed to know you know and that for me is part of not telling a sentimental story and allowing those things to exist so that you know they that that can come out you know that story can come out you know and be honored as what it is
0: yeah it's kind of wild um i mentioned it actually in my discussion with abby page uh, cuz it comes out in her uh, her first work actually her first play um, was that the whole idea kind of when I grew up, when I was growing up, drinking a lot was just something that was almost uh, assumed to be a characteristic of a Franco-American, especially a Franco-American male. He just kind of accepted they drink a lot. That was just kind of what happened. That was kind of like the, the word on the street, the reputation. Right. It, was kind of, right. it was kind of crazy. But now, I
1: think, too, that to drink in French is different than to drink in English. So I ben think ben. that there's a different connotation of that. In the in the French DNA, because for me, even if it's in English, it's often in French. So that's gotcha. the thing about the language. The way that I feel is that, you know, when people make their journey and I just wanted to bring this in a little bit. Sure. That when I was doing the forum, the thing I noticed when people were writing articles for the forum is that the people are on a journey and the journey is very personal. And it, you cannot know for that person what their next best step is going to be. And so I think having access to a full-bodied story, particularly for women, um, I think is really important. And that, you know, people uh, understand that each journey is personal. And I think it's important that sometimes people go for the language. I did that in the 70s. I took conversational French through head. I think that's a natural progression. And it's almost like you could define the territory that people are going to go through in order to get at the meaning of what it means to be Franco-American to them, you know. The thing I was, when I was teaching, I uh, also developed a course for Franco-American women that I was asked by the Franco Studies Program at the University of Maine to teach, which was cross-listed with women and gender studies. What I found was Leaving, immigrating away from a culture is a grief journey, but the return trip is also a grief journey. The reason I find that was that people would be uh, sad to reclaim parts of who they were or their family or the stories of their families. I have one woman that was in the class. She went home to visit with her mother and her uh, female relatives, and they had long ago put like the instruments in the closet and not played yeah. them, but they took them out this Sunday afternoon that they were all visiting and they started playing instruments and they were all crying. I mean, that struck me like, I mean, my heart was like, wow, you know, that's amazing, you know. And there was another story when I was uh, doing a workshop for Maine Archives and museums. And there was a young woman in there and I was doing a presentation on, you know, like talking to, you know, I don't know, she was probably gen, a millennial at that point. Um, and she almost started crying because she didn't know what had happened as a result with the French and her family with her dad. She didn't know the story. And so, yeah, I think that to regain the culture is a grief journey. And you can always tell, when at to me anyways, I can tell when I'm hearing someone talk at what stage they are, you know. Well, you
0: have to let me know where I am because I'm pretty sure that this entire project has been part of my journey, for sure. Well, it's it's
1: your journey. It is. You know, it's personal, definite. And, you know, you're giving back to the community. So there's that whole aspect, you know.
0: That's awesome. Now, you I mean, you were very honest in your book that for a long time you try to to lose the French identity. Like you, you wanted to be English. You wanted to have an English name. Talk about that experience. And what was it? Was it one single thing or a series of things? What brought you back?
1: The thing that when I hear people in denial, I'm like, oh, I know what that's all about because I've been there and done that. But I was, I got a uh, scholarship at the University of Maine. Uh, there was that being offered at the time, bilingual education scholarship. Uh, it was a federally funded, so I had three years of college, full scholarship. And and then I, still in denial, still in denial. So this was studying Franco-American studying French, blah, blah, blah. I tested. And then I started working at the Franco-American Center, and I was there for a year, and I was still in denial. So it took a lot of effort. So I know if someone has this journey that they have to do, I know how hard it is to get past whatever those barriers are, psychological or whatever it is that they are struggling with in terms of the public shaming. I mean, because I was at the time when, you know, there was a lot of public shaming about being French. And so, you know, even today, speaking French in public is a challenge sometimes, you know. But that's how long it took, and that's how much it took for me to get past that point where I said I was Franco-American.
0: And well, believed, that's it,
1: and believed yeah. it. Sure,
0: no, that's, that's crazy. And now, one thing I find absolutely amazing uh, about your writing, is the way you are able to remember the details of these events um, from your childhood. It's like not just what happened, but the way you were feeling when it happened. Like it's it's absolutely, I'll be mean, going back to three years old. It's it's kind of crazy. It's pretty pretty remarkable. I, I thought every time I came across one of those stories, like I, I can tell you, I don't have that type of recollection of my past. So I thought that was very, very, very cool. I would like to bring up a couple of uh, the stories. Is One of them you mentioned you grew up, Uh, in the town that had uh, Colby College. And there was kind of a divide between those students and the Franco-American students. So maybe you could tell us about that.
1: Well, back then, that was the thing. But I think um, there's been a huge change in Waterville. So Colby is really making the effort to reconnect, you know, like with the town. They have the dormitory uh, that they built downtown. And then they have a course, which I presented at last fall. Uh, not this past fall, but the fall before, and that it uh, brings up a community consciousness. But at the time, I think that the sense, and maybe there still is because, you, you know, some of that stuff kind of goes underground as to, you know, the feeling toward the French. I mean, that hasn't gone away. It sure. um, has come out in a couple of recent incidents that I'm kind of addressing. But I think that my book is taught. At Colby, it was taught in two or three other classes, but it's been taught in their education course with Mark Tappan, um, and he's teaching it this semester again. Um, and also, you know, I think that that kind of gets that story told there, and so you have. I'm not. I'm trying to think if there's a similar type of connection, say like with Bowdoin or Bates. Sure. it could be, but I think you might they have other kinds of work that's going on. Lewiston has its kind of thing. Bowdoin has its thing that it's, you know, it's, it's looking at. Um, but I think the thing with Kobe is that some of that still exists, but I think that part of it is, you know, in order to, you know, for me, I don't have, a, I don't have a problem talking about issues. Sure. And I think some people do have a problem talking about issues, but in, um, in my house, I mean, everybody, that's what we did. We were constantly discussing stuff and everybody was, well, we didn't talk, we yelled. We weren't yeah. angry, but that's just how we were talking, you know.
0: Yeah, because it, it comes <laughs> comes across that, you know, the Colby crew uh, was considered almost too good for the Franco-American girls. So, now it's kind of crazy. Now, one thing you mentioned uh, in your writing, which was, was new to me, was the whole idea that uh, of body language, you talk a lot about body language, and that the Franco-American, especially women, had a body language. Maybe you could tell us about that.
1: Yeah, that often comes up. The thing about the leaning... Yes. Yes yes, yes, yes 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 and uh, let's <laughs> do like a specific incident you know because back then you used to like go out and hang out you know like you would you would like do the dishes with you know my mother and I would do the dishes and then you would go and you would hang out and everybody would be hanging out and so or Sunday you know like you'd be taking a walk you know you're, like you would walk the whole town or whatever and they were like guys that you would really want to like talk to but while you're talking to them you're leaning on this you're leaning on the telephone pole you know and then that think- <laughs> trying to envision myself doing that. And that's what happened. You know, I mean, you'd be standing there, you know, trying to look cool, and there you were. you're going know, to be leaning on a telephone pole, having a chat, and it was probably at the end of my driveway. Who knows? I have no idea. That's but, awesome. Yeah. So, to me, it became as an icon of, you know, behaviors of, you know, what was normal back then. sure. So, sure. Yeah.
0: No, that's <laughs> funny, funny. And what other kind of interesting story that uh when you wrote an entire thing about salt pork which oh, yeah. <laughs> was very which is very cool uh for those who maybe didn't grow up around it uh what was the significance to the franco american community how did it end up in your book
1: the salt pork you mean yeah 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 and you know what? the interesting part is that there's a cookbook writer in the state of maine and the most quoted thing from my book is that part on the salt pork you can't <laughs> Can't You awesome. can't have a kitchen without salt pork. That's and right. I just found uh, <laughs> there was a young woman that I had been doing correspondence with, and she wrote, like, several, several pieces for the Franco-American women's e-zine online. And one of the staples that she put in the front of her cookbook was salt pork. So, yeah, you had, you know, the whole thing was just that's what you started. You know, you started your spaghetti with that. You started your beans with that, you know. <laughs> Fried salt pork before you know, you can go to what Iliolian and you go to the restaurant, and you know, it's not on the menu, but you you ask, you know, they, they call it that is Zore the Chris, and you know, they'll they'll bring you out some fried salt pork.
0: But but one specific line before we move on, uh, that I wrote down because it kind of struck me, I needed to make sure to ask you about it, uh, is you referred to yourself in one of the poems as a uh, a cultural dead end, right?
1: Because
0: it got me thinking of. If that was me, too. So, uh, what was that? What What is a culture dead end? Why do you think you might be one?
1: Well, one of the things I have to point out is I have a black humor. Yeah. You know? And I grew up with that because, like, if we would talk about somebody, you know, I mean, just stuff comes out as black humor, but it's not necessarily self-deprecating. Uh, my neighborhood was a dead end. My father would talk about the dead end kids, which was a comic, like, I think in the 20s. So, that was just a framed, something to frame, I think, the stories in the sense of accepting it, but at the same time, I'm saying what that means, not you. Someone else would put that definition on us, you know?
0: No, that's awesome. Now, I'd like to talk about more about your class. Um, maybe you talked about how you, you developed a class, taught a class for a number of years at the University of Maine. Uh, talk about what was the class? What did you teach?
1: They... the. You know, Franco-American studies. This was like in between, like um, before Susan Panet started at the center. So there was like a year she wasn't there, and so um, this Franco studies committee wanted a course um, on Franco-American women, and I'm like, they asked me to do it. And I'm like, yeah, that would be great. So I developed. It was an online also, so it was. Taught. Oh really? That's cool. Yeah, so it was on. It was early adoption of online. So there was. The online component, but at the beginning it was also um, taught live, so it was like a dual class. For me, there was a uh, textbook, because what I was interested in, you know, if you go back a little bit to the franco American Center, they had a Jack Kerouac conference. And I kept asking the guys there, well, what about the women? And I kept saying that, which probably drove them nuts. <laughs> <laughs> what about the women? You know, I mean, like, you know, and they threw me, you know, like I had found out about uh, Jerry Robichoux during the bilingual education. And I'm like, I got in my car and I screamed down to the Bangor Public Library, had no idea that there was a Franco writer in the culture. So that was my first writer. Okay. That's awesome. The second one I found out was Grace Metalius. She's from your town, right? She is indeed. They said, they said to me, the guy said to me, that I, they Jack why. They, they said, well, Grace Metallis is Franco. And I'm like, well, who's that? And they said, Peyton Tyson. <laughs> immediately. Immediately yes. from the whole thing, right? So, yeah. Then I fell in love with this whole notion of the Franco-American women and their stories and Um, The Franco-American Women's Institute is to look at the Franco-Women's contributions. So the course came out of, there was a one history book, the Clio Collective, that was put out and I kind of followed that as a format, but also adding other aspects to it. And then I developed a second one, which had 150 pages on the web for the class itself. So that kind of gives you an idea in a sense as to the amount of material that is available and what can be taught for that and i taught it for 13 years and the women like i told you one of the you know one of the instances but um the thing that you can do is go on the franco-american women's institute site in the e-zines a lot of the work that came out of those courses the women's papers are online Nice. So people can read, and it's all free, so they can read the material if they want to look at some of the research.
0: Curious, because I always get fascinated um, by the next generation of Franco-Americans, the ones younger, younger than I am. And so I'm curious um, how the reception was of the students that you taught over these 13 years. Did you see uh, themselves kind of find an awareness over the course of the number of weeks it took to have this class?
1: I think that at the time that I was teaching it, it might have been more, you know, I don't know your age, but um, it's been a because I did work with the explorations program for seven years after that. So definitely no Gen Z in there. Um, Millennials, maybe, you know, Gen X. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Um, Then older women. So, you know, there was like a a mix in the class. And I think that um, no one would take that unless they really really were, I think, looking for something in terms of because um, that was a specialty. You know, it's kind of like the Franco sure. Studies today. Um, we were able to add a lot of students to Susan's Franco Studies class because we were registering a lot of students for the last segment of what I was at the University with the explorations program um and people that get in there this they're like i i explained earlier this young woman i mean they absolutely don't know their story because it's not been told right sure and so yeah it gives them an opportunity to get past the commercialized or the the tech stuff that they usually have as a as a version of story
0: yeah that makes sense your time maybe at LaForum and your time teaching the class i'm just curious what role that played or Uh, What portion of your journey was influenced by having those kind of positions, being the editor for so long and then teaching this amazing class for so long?
1: I think that I've had a luxury in my own sense because I had the one. It was also a huge responsibility, but I think I had the luxury to look at my culture in finite and I think that that also has the effect within the family exponentially. It affects other people like, you know, my nieces and nephews, perhaps, or, you know, like my grandsons, you know, trying to, you know, they are definitely Gen Z. So, you know, what what is it that translates to them? So it's also a challenge into like, you know, what do we got to do to make sure that this gets carried on or gets told or even refashioned? I don't know. I mean, it's going to be a mashup. You know, it's not going to be. You know, because we do need to get past 1930. You know, sure. we do need to be able to talk to the future generation and what is it going to look like. You know, that's what I'm interested in.
0: Yeah, me too. Absolutely. What what is it going to look like? Because you're, I think uh, it's interesting. A lot of the history and this one again, one of the motivators of this project that kind of frustrated me when I was learning about my personal history uh, is a lot of the stories are really good about talking to about 1865 through uh, the World War II era. and Then kind of World War II era happens and history book over. And no more story. So you kind of left f- figuring out, you know, well, there's still a lot of us here. You know, obviously something is still going on.
1: I think that we're living a, a lot of things with the Franco, I think we're living the grandparents' story because the story was not allowed to go forward. I think that the story itself, when people say that, we lost the French, I don't, I don't accept that. I think that it was stolen. I didn't lose anything. It was taken from me. I was told different things, so I stopped speaking the language. When you, you know, like the book, Quiet Presence, I don't accept that. For me, it's a silenced presence. And so the reason that we are, I think that some people, you know, are kind of frozen in time is because what do you do to create a modern Franco-American voice? You know, what does that voice look like? You know, what that's is a great it- question? I yeah. love that. Yeah.
0: No, that's awesome. Now, I think it's something we could talk about forever. Uh, but one thing uh, before we get on to the Franco-American Women's Institute, which I think is just an awesome project. Uh, I wanted to bring up. I saw that you give us a talk about Camille Lessard Bessonet. And I thought it'd be kind of cool if you could tell our audience who that was.
1: Camille was my hero. You know, like she is when she was writing and what she was doing at the time and throughout her entire life. I mean, she was a suffragist. And so they had a committee that they put together for the main state uh, museum for the exhibit, which is current, which is right now. And I made sure that she was in there because she was writing for Le Messager, her suffragist. Views and that that woman should have the vote. And this was early. She was like 1910, 1911, way before the 1920 date, you know, that when it was uh, made into, you know, that women could vote. Sure. The other thing that she had um, a sensibility and she wrote about in the newspaper was uh, women and their rights, not just the voting rights, but, you know, like their rights as you know, in the household and their rights, you know, because she when she was 16, she was a teacher in Quebec. And then That's she cool. immigrated to the U.S. and she went to work in the Continental Mill in Lewiston. And she worked there for a time. And then she offered her services to Le messager to write a column for the, the Moulin, the women that were working in the mills. She did move back to Quebec, but she came back to the U.S., She was one of the first women that was a settlement agent working for the railroads.
0: Oh, that's wild.
1: Yeah. She was not married. She married like when she was in her 40s or 50s. I mean, she was. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she wound up um, living in California. She passed away in California like the early 1970s. But her book, Canuck, if you look at it, it's pretty amazing in that she looks at domestic violence. And that book was written in the 1930s. That's crazy. So she had a sensibility of bringing issues to the foreground long before that was public. And in the Franco-American culture, I can't even imagine. I mean, it was phenomenal.
0: That's some serious guts, is what that is. For sure. Oh, that's awesome. So we mentioned it a couple of times, the Franco-American Women's Institute. Obviously, we need to talk about that. So uh, what is the Franco-American Women's Institute?
1: The thing that happened when I was at the Franco-American Center, I was there was a period that it was being challenged by the university and money wise and that sort of thing. And there were not a lot of women that were working there. And so my um, questioning of the culture, what I found was that when you look at the general culture, when you're talking about the general Franco-American culture, what gets glossed over or not included are the women's contributions. And so there was a very I mean, there were women before me that were had been doing work, um, definitely, at, both as the editor and working, you know, at the Franco-American Center. So building on other people's, I mean, to me, that's the important part: is that there is a legacy, you know, it's sure. like we have literary heritage. We have a legacy of people that have gone on before us, and yet we carry on this work, correct? And so, Absolutely. American Women's Institute was a deliberate look at the women's contributions and how could that be made more known. And in the 1990s, when I started the Franco-American Women's Institute online, there was nothing for Franco-American women. Today, there's more, definitely. There are a lot of groups. There's a lot of stuff. But back then, there were, you know, like you would look at, um, I was working with a woman at the University of Maryland. And there was an Italian women's group, there was Jewish, there was everything, but Franco American, there was nothing. But she supported that. So there was a listserv that was working with the University of Maryland. I mean, there was different iterations. Fow we used to meet in public at the bookstore in Bangor. Um, other women wanted to do some other stuff. They wanted to do looking at the songs and the recipes, so they took off and they did their thing, which is important. I think everybody needs to define what their work is. And sure. it needs um, from that person, you know, and how they want to do that. Um, so fawi was there to support the voices, uh, not to tell them basically, but just to provide a place um, to publish, uh, to have, you know, if you wanted to, you know, do some artwork or whatever, you know. And so for the 20th anniversary of FOWE, I put out a call, one for money. From the community which it was completely community funded and two for uh, publication in the in the we put out an anthology to celebrate the 20th anniversary heliachope french heritage women create and the my thing was whoever submitted got in the book not because gotcha. i was just you know free for all but i don't like competition when telling story to me telling story is a natural thing that people do um, in doing their creativity. So 130 women submitted and 100 got oh, wow. in the book.
0: That's awesome. And if somebody checks out the Institute today, what are they, they going to find?
1: They're going to find examples of women's voices from different uh, walks of life. One, some from the classroom, some of the poets. There's a poet there, Ida Roy who I absolutely love. She was from Northern Maine. She was one of those um, older women. She used to sing, and she she would write poets, poetry. And um, I, I would call her up, and I said, Ida, can I? She said, put my name everywhere, she says. Just put my <laughs> name everywhere. So we need to have the Ida Ida Roy, um, you know, motto, like, just put my name everywhere. She was That's so awesome. Cool. She, she, <laughs> she said, you don't need to ask. She said, just put my name everywhere. I'm okay. <laughs> sure. So I did put her in the anthology, too. He wants her name everywhere. She's passed away, but she was just, she was just, I think she's a great role model.
0: Well, that's way fun. So definitely people have to check this out. Uh, This has been awesome. This has been a ton of fun. You got to buy the book. The book is an amazing story. There's some stuff in there that's super intense, super serious. There's a lot of stuff that's going to make you laugh, too. Uh, I'm going to be honest, the first time I had Wednesday's Child before, I had down the plains. And the day I picked it up was the day I finished the book. 100% 100% true story. It was awesome. So, Thank you. very, very cool. I'm very glad to have you on the program. Now, if somebody wants to check out the Franco American Women's Institute, where can we send them?
1: Um, it's fawi.net. So www.fawi.net.com. So it's net. But thank you again for this opportunity. And I'm really cheering you guys on. You're doing awesome. I love seeing new blood in the work. It always adds a charge to what's going on. So, you know. I appreciate that.
0: Now, what's next for you?
1: I'm working on I've been collecting I didn't turn the faucet off when I was doing <laughs> <laughs> when I was doing the research for the courses and so my house looks like a library. Um, I probably bought 10 books this week. Um, I keep finding all this stuff while I was waiting for you I found some more stuff so I have like I don't know a huge list and somehow I have to make this attractive and attainable so that it can be accessed and used. And I I can't come down on what the project looks like, but I'm having a wonderful time researching Franco and French Heritage Women.
0: Well, this is awesome. So we're very much looking forward to seeing that. Ria Coté-Robbins, thank you so much for joining the French-Canadian Legacy.
1: Thank you. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair
0: to think that everything they love we simply do not share with the spirit dies our culture will survive each of us must choose how much to keep alive each of us must choose how much to keep alive